are opening up episode 245 of Monster Kid Radio with a song from the band Daikaiju. There's a reason for that, and that's because we're going to get into a kaiju film. But first, let me tell you, this song that you're hearing right now is Flight of Garuda. It's from the album Phase 2. You can find Daikaiju at daikaiju.org or look them up on Bandcamp or follow the show notes over at monsterkidradio.net. That's the website for Monster Kid Radio, the home of classic monsters, modern talk, and me, Derek M. Cook. Welcome to the show. I'm excited to get into the conversation that we're going to have with our special guest about a special movie. But before we get to that, I'd like to just take a second and make a comment on the passing of two people that were involved in movies that are pretty important to me. On November 22nd, it was announced that Robin Stewart had passed on. Now, Robin Stewart might not know his name, but you will know some of the films that he's in, specifically one movie called The Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires. This is a Hammer film. It's a Peter Cushing film. It's a Shaw Brothers production. It's really cool. It's one of my favorite Hammer films of all time. Talked about it with Scott Morris and Casey Criswell over at 1951 Down Place in the past, and I think I'm going to have an opportunity to talk about it with somebody else on another podcast in the near future. Robin Stewart played Leland Van Helsing in this film. He was also in a movie called The Haunted House of Horror in 1969, which I really enjoy. It stars Frankie Avalon, but trust me, it's still a fun Okay, it's not really fun. It's a spooky, creepy movie. Borderlines on a little bit of exploitation, a little bit of slasher stuff going on, but it's still an interesting film that I am proud to have in my DVD collection, and I can say I've watched it a few times. Robin Stewart, rest in peace, and thank you. Black Belt against Black Magic in the greatest battle of all time. Seven brothers and their one sister meet Dracula. While vampires drink the blood of the virgins and turn them into zombies. seen Kung Fu until you've seen the seven brothers and their one sister in action against Dracula. A couple of days before that, on November 19th, we lost Rex Reason. Now, Rex Reason did more than just genre films, of course, but he was in some of the biggest sci-fi and monster movies, as far as I'm concerned. He was in This Island Earth in 1955. He played Dr. Meacham in that film. But he's also in a movie in 1956 that I really enjoy, and that would be the third film in the Creature from the Black Lagoon series, The Creature Walks Among Us. Now, this film, I feel, gets a bad rap. It's underrated, but I think as I get older, I enjoy this movie more and more Less because of the monster stuff and more because of what's going on with the human characters. And Rex Reason was a big part of that. Rex's brother Rhodes was also an actor and appeared in at least one kaiju film. And I'm talking about King Kong Escapes. 
We lost Rhodes Reason last December, and now Rex has gone on to join him. Rex, rest in peace. And of course, thanks for all of your hard work. It's all new. The creature walks among us, more terrifying in human form. Striking at the heart of the city with inhuman fury. The creature walks among us. Horror unleashed by the daring of man and a dangerous experiment of science. Fire burned away the outer scale. There's a structure of human skin underneath it. The creature walks among us. The grimmest cargo ever brought to civilization. Now a monster made even more frightful by human emotion. Plus Merle Oberon, Lex Barker in The Price of Fear. Two great thrill pictures on one program. Okay, this week on Monster Kid Radio, we are starting part one of a two-part conversation with returning guest, Stephen D. Sullivan. He and I have been chasing each other around, trying to line up a schedule to make this work. We're going to talk about the movie Godzilla vs. The Thing this week on Monster Kid Radio. Next week, he's going to be back to talk about another kaiju film. But this week, it's Godzilla vs. The Thing. And spoiler alert, if you don't know what The Thing is, you probably ought to go see the movie first. And then come back here, because we're going to get into that conversation with Stephen D. Sullivan right after this. The fantastic fire monsters raging out of the flaming bowels of hell. Mighty Gigantus crushing whole cities in its wrath. And deadly Angurus screaming its challenge of mortal combat. The battle of the ages. Scenes and sights and sensations beyond anything the screen has ever shown. Pounding across the motion picture screen comes the most terrifying monster of them all. Gamera, the Invincible. Gamera, the super monster that even the H-bomb cannot destroy. Gamera, the Invincible. Gamera, consuming raw atomic power. Power to destroy entire cities. Open fire! Man's most destructive weapons have no effect on Gamera, the Invincible. The mightiest nuclear weapons ever devised are powerless against Gamera, the Invincible. Is humanity doomed? Will the world be destroyed? The United Nations is called to emergency session in a last desperate effort to save the world. We have one plan that we think might work. We have discussed Plan Z with the Japanese authorities, and they agree it is the best of our alternative plans. 
Is that correct, sir? That is so. Plan Z is hope of the world. A cast of thousands at the mercy of the most terrifying monster that ever lived. Brian Donlevy as General Arnold. is beyond comprehension. He must be stopped now. Albert Decker as the Secretary of Defense. Will Plan Z stop Gamera? Gamera, the Invincible. This is Jackie Ray Naaman Jones. I play Debbie in Monos, The Hands of Fate. And you're listening to Monster Kid Radio. I'd like to welcome back to the show a man whose books are on my bookshelf. He's been on my podcast before. I'm always thinking, well, that's a little creepy, but I like to think a lot about Stephen D. Sullivan. (laughs) Welcome back to Monster Kid Radio, sir. Hey, Derek. Great to be here. I am excited, sir, for a couple things. Now, I know we've got a kaiju film to talk about, but I want to give you an opportunity to talk about what's going on with Monos. First, can we do that? I mean, it's two completely different kinds of movies. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, you know, from the sublime to r- the ridiculous, and we might as well start with the ridiculous. <laughs> Your listeners may know that I have been working on not one, but two novelizations of Manos, The Hands of Fate. You're a crazy person. <laughs> yeah, no, it's an insane thing to do. I often set myself completely insane goals and challenges for... No other reason than that I can. And so I decided that I would do two adaptations of Manos, the Hands of Fate, continuing on from the White Zombie adaptation. So this is another in what is probably, this is probably the end of the series of my adapting public domain movies. And I decided to do Manos because, hey, Manos. Go out with a bang, go out on top, right? right? Exactly. (laughs) And I decided to do to do two of them because my first thought, my first wacky challenge to myself was that I should create an actual good horror movie story out of the skeleton of Manos, The Hands of Fate, widely considered the worst movie of all time. And not a bad contender for that in terms of movies that are worse than Manos are completely unwatchable. But Manos you can watch and you can enjoy as a bad movie. You can try to tease good stuff out of it. Anyway, I decided that I would try to make a really good story out of Manos, The Hands of Fate. And that seemed like challenge enough. But as I started to work on that, I realized that I was making a serious marketing blunder. Now, I am prone to serious marketing blunders. My whole career has been (laughs) being ahead of or behind the market that exists. So 20 years ago, around 1996, I created a series of eBooks, which probably would have been a huge hit if anybody had actually had eBook readers back then, but they didn't. So I realized that if I did a, a book called Manos Talents of Fate and put it out, that a lot of Manos, the Hands of Fate people would pick that book up and say, hey, What's this garbage? I thought Manos was funny. Not wanting to abandon that idea, I decided to do something even crazier and do two books at that point. And I would do one, Manos, The Hands of Fate, that would actually be funny, deliberately funny. 
and play up all the absurdity that we see in the wonderful film that we know and love. So I do a funny one, and then I do a serious one as well. And I ended up writing drafts of both of them over the summer, at the end of the summer. And when Halloween rolled around, I decided I needed to have at least one of them out by Halloween. And I actually finished the Manos, the Hands of Fate, the funny one, ebook, and put that out in time for Halloween, so you can get that now. And just today, just this morning, before we started talking on the podcast, I ordered print proofs of that book as well. So with any luck, by the time Black Friday and the holiday season of 2015 rolls around, there will be available a Manos, the Hands of Fate print edition to go along with the ebook editions, which people can grab for the holidays or just for chuckles or whatever they want to do. I'm still working. To get all that done, I had to put aside the serious version for a little while, but I'm now going back to that, and I'll be finishing that up. With any luck, that'll be out by the end of 2015, but it's possible it may take until early 2016 to see that in print form. It's so hard to say this with a straight face, but I'm excited <laughs> for a Manos project. <laughs> well, um, I hope there are about a million other people. There that you go. That too. Who knows? With Mystery Science Theater 3000 coming back now, mm-hmm. maybe my timing's right on this. Maybe I'm ahead yeah. of the curve. Maybe you started it. Maybe I did. That's and then, it. you know, I know they're doing a a Manos sequel, Jackie Naaman Jones and her dad, Tom Naaman, who was the master and some friends are working on some kind of a Manos sequel. And Jackie's mm-hmm. got a Manos book coming out in a way. I wish I'd been just a month ahead of where I was because Playboy magazine did a huge Manos article right in October. I assume they must have probably planned it for the, the Halloween season. And suddenly, a lot of people are talking about Manus again. So maybe I'm at the head of this curve rather than just, you know, <laughs> too far ahead or, <laughs> or too far behind. We'll, time will tell. So that's what I'm working on right now. And I've also got a couple of other projects in the works. I am still kicking around the Cushing Horrors idea that it'll be a monster rally that I'll probably do online free. Uh, the way I did Daikaiju Attack, which I suspect we may talk more about Daikaiju Attack oh, yeah. during this podcast. So I may do it online the way I did that. Uh, I've got a Patreon set up if you go to CushingHorrors.com. It hasn't officially launched yet, but by the time this podcast comes out, maybe it will be. That would be an online serial. And then I've got another classic monster project that I can't quite talk about because I haven't been announced to be with it yet, but involves doing two movies in the classic universal horror style. Well, all of that will be talked about here on the show. Once it's all official, when the Manos books comes out, that'll be talked about here on the show. Just like we talked about Daikaiju Attack. You see that, listener? Steve laid the seed for this segue here. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> By mentioning Daikaiju Attack. Not that I don't play the heck out of that promo anyway, because I dig the promo a lot. Daikaiju oh, Attack is uh, a novel that is available now, but it was released online. A uh, section or a chapter, was it a daily? It was weekly. Weekly? Okay. Yeah, one chapter a week. I tried to bring them out around Friday. It was kind of fun. It was uh, Anytime you release something in serialized form that's not actually finished when you're doing it, there's a little bit of a tightrope walk there. But at <laughs> yeah. the same time, it's thrilling to have something come out that way. Right now, you know, we didn't mention this, but I have a, a serialized story that comes out once a month on the Mimiverse 
podcast yeah. with Christopher Mim and that kind of stuff, Canoe Cops versus the Mummy, which is really exciting to me because I probably should release it, start releasing it on my webpage too. But right now, the only way that you can hear it is he reads a chapter of it every month on his podcast. And I'm enjoying the heck out of that. That's, that's a lot of fun. It's, and it's really even more fun to hear someone interpret your work after you've finished it. My favorite chapter of that going back is the Lou and Bud chapter. <laughs> because I love listening to Chris try to get the cadence down, and he pretty much does, uh, the delivery between the Lou and Bud characters. Right. And, and they're not Lou and Bud in the story. I mean, you named them something else, but... I think I did name them Lou and Bud. <laughs> oh, did you? Did you? Yeah, it, it's basically an Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein setup, and it's, it's wonderful. Now, I, I love listening to that because I like trying to pinpoint, okay, that's where that name came from, because you are dropping so many names, and it's just so cool. You got a Julie Adams character, you got Agar, I mean, all this stuff's in there. It's fun. It's a lot of fun. As a a lover of these classic films and the classic characters, you want to pay homage to them. Sure. You don't want to rip them off directly. But if I can name someone Agar or Julie... And they're in diving suits and going around looking for a mummy under the water. I think everyone's going to get that. The people that don't get it are still going to enjoy it. And for monster kids like you and me and a lot of our friends, it gives that kind of extra, oh, I know who that is. And it it puts a a picture in your mind that's maybe a little sharper than if you didn't get the reference. You know, it's like when I – one of the – monsters slash characters in my tournament of death it was a gill man and he was called Rico r-e-e-k-o and those of us that love the creature eventually would probably get the fact that he's named after Rico browning who played the creature in the suit underwater in the original thing and one of my fans months after this came out was like hey i just got the Rico thing <laughs> i just got it i feel so stupid but at the same time, once you get it, then it's like, oh, you get to do that knowing smile. And, and hopefully it brings a smile to your lips because that's, that's why I do that kind of stuff. And especially in the world of the Mimiverse, it makes sense to have these names pop up because even if it's something that may be a little on the nose in a dead serious project, because right. it's the Mimiverse, we're all having fun. And of course there's a Zuko. And of course, you know, it just, right, it makes exactly. sense. And it's just a treat. I've, not been on the Mimiverse podcast for a little while. I'm a little behind on my contributions, but that's going to be amping back up too. I'll make sure there's a link to the show. Well, is there a website set up? You know what? We'll find a way for listeners to find it. I'll make sure listeners know how to do it. <laughs> yeah, but Derek, I've missed you. I, I miss uh, hearing you on that. I need to get back into that. Absolutely. Yeah, so name dropping. You yeah. Know, uh, homage names. Daikaiju attack. There we go. Thank full you. Full of them. <laughs> Just full of them you know daikaiju attacks is original kaiju story you created some original characters an original monster it's it's a heck of a ride it's clear that you're a fan of the kaijus uh i'm just gonna call it a genre i'm not gonna say subgenre. it's a genre unto itself well in some sense it's a it's a subgenre of monster movies or it's sure. a subgenre of horror movies which you know i've heard someone say recently that karloff didn't like hearing horror for his work, and Christopher Lee didn't like it either. And in some sense, I get that, because sadly today, when you say horror films to somebody, they think injury to the eyeball, slasher, and that kind of stuff. And so we've lost some of the rich heritage of the horror movie or the 
the terror movie. But that's one of the reasons I tend to, instead of calling myself a horror kid, I call myself a monster kid. Right. Because it's the monsters I like, mm-hmm. you know. The guy with the, the knife, not so much. He's not a monster. He's just, we, you know, I mean, I live in Wisconsin. We, <laughs> we had... <laughs> The peep, the guy with the knife that cut people up and made them into lampshades, and the other guy with the knife that cut people up and ate them. You know, those are real people. In a metaphoric sense, they're monsters. But when I say I'm a monster kid, I'm not talking about those guys. I'm talking about Godzilla and Creature from the Black Lagoon and Rodan and the Frankenstein monster and the Wolfman and all those kind of guys. Ghidra mm-hmm. and the three-headed monster. Oh, yeah. Hey, he's got monster in the title, clearly. There, there you go. There you go. <laughs> So we've been kind of chasing each other around a little bit, trying to make time, make a schedule happen so that we can talk about these kaiju films. I don't think we've talked kaiju on the show before, you and I together. I know you've called in a voicemail about how you didn't necessarily consider the Destroy All Monsters and things like that a monster rally in the right. strictest terms. But I don't think you and I have actually talked kaiju on the show. So I, this is new for me, and I'm excited to get into, well, we're going to use the American title. We're going to use the American release. Godzilla versus The Thing, 1964. Godzilla. Terror monster of the motion picture screen. Meet The Thing. Godzilla versus The Thing. Innocent looking, but so feared pagan man worshipped it. great film. You know, I know I've said this when we were doing Harryhausen as well, and it applies there too. This is one of my favorite films of all time. Godzilla versus The Thing, otherwise known as Mothra versus Godzilla. Oh yeah, if you discount the first Godzilla film, which in a sense I do because it's very different in tone from any of the sequels in that it's a huge metaphor about the atomic bomb and the reconstruction of Japan and the destruction during the war and all that kind of stuff. It's a great monster film too, but in a sense, I set that aside. It's like, that's the Godzilla film. All the others follow after it. It doesn't play in the same ballpark with them, right? Setting that one aside, Mothra versus Godzilla, Godzilla versus the thing is my favorite giant monster movie. It's just a a wonderful thing. I should say it's my favorite Daikaiju movie. Okay. To get it out of the the same realm as uh, say Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, which inspired Godzilla, or King Kong, which inspired Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. But those three would probably be, you know, right at the top of my big monster, giant monster monster on the loose kind of films. Anyway, the Mothra versus Godzilla, Godzilla versus the Thing is my favorite Daikaiju film. And for those of you that aren't familiar with Japanese, generally people nowadays they talk about kaiju films and I am no expert in Japanese, but kaiju is formed of two Japanese words, one of which means strange, the other which means beast. So in a sense strange beast is equivalent to our our word monster. 
in English, and daikaiju, dai means big or great or giant. So properly, these are daikaiju films, but nowadays, especially with the recent giant robot movie, a lot of people just say kaiju when they really mean daikaiju. But right. uh, again, I said, uh, being sometimes marketing tone deaf, I wonder if I should have titled Daikaiju Attack, Giant Monster Attack. And if that would have been a better marketing move, I suppose I could always release a special edition with that title. And then redo the cover with, like, I don't know, Brian Don Levy or Perry Mason in the corner, <laughs> you know, and just <laughs> insert an American <laughs> reporter character. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Although, actually, I do have an American, I have the Raymond Burr character in Daikaiju Attack, <laughs> and I have the Nick Adams military character in Daikaiju <laughs> Attack, and I, all of those people are actually in the thing, so I really could just change the title of it and see how it sells, if it sells better that way. Maybe I should. That wouldn't be hard. That'd be like changing two files. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Well, well, let's talk about some movies before you do that. All right, so this is the fourth Godzilla film. Let's see. Godzilla was the first one, obviously. The Godzilla right. Raids Again. King Kong versus Godzilla came out almost 10 years after Godzilla Raids Again. There's a big break. Yeah. And big, then yeah. this one comes out in 64. You know, right. for it being the fourth film in the Godzilla run, I, I know that Toho did some other movies. You know, Mothra, obviously, was before this, and Rodan and a few other things. Right. It's still pretty surprising to me that when you watch this, you see all the recognizable Godzilla tropes. They've already been figured out. It's all there. Yeah, in, in some sense. And in another sense, this is the first film of kind of the new era of Godzilla. Now, whether that's for good or ill depends upon how you feel about the 70s films. I'm not crazy about them. But I think that the three that happened right after King Kong versus Godzilla, King Kong versus Godzilla, they finally got into their heads okay, we can have a monster versus monster battle. Yeah, I know they had that in Raids again, or Gigantus the Fire Monster, whatever you want to call it. But they finally seem to have gotten it into their heads. They could take two of their big properties and mash them together. And market the heck out of it. Using and market that. the yeah. heck out of it. <laughs> right, exactly. <Yeah. laughs> While before, you know, we'd had a sequel to Godzilla because, like King Kong, you, you get the success, and it's like, what can we do? Oh, let's do another one right away. They kind of did that with Raids Again, whatever you happen to want to call it. But then they went on and said, okay, well, let's do another giant monster. So they did Rodan in 1961. They did Mothra, and they did a number of other monsters in between. But then the King Kong idea came along, and suddenly it was, oh, look, we had two marketable monsters. We put them in one film, and we made squillions of dollars. And then <laughs> they decided to do this one. You know, I've heard a lot of people say that uh, Godzilla versus King Kong is a comedy, and I can see that totally in retrospect. When I was a kid, that completely went over my head. With this one, with Mothra versus Godzilla, they actually kind of ramped back the comedy and decided to more or less play it straight up to really kind of go for a monster battle, you know, or if you include it in, in the the general category, a monster rally in which you get to see the big guys duke it out. I mean, I'm a big fan of King Kong versus Godzilla. I know it's a little no, silly in spots and it does get a little slapsticky here and there. Right. And the King Kong suit sucks. <laughs> yeah, especially with the uh, the ever-changing forearm lengths. Right, yeah. Um, yeah. Depending on who's wearing what glove set, I suppose. The 
film itself, uh, you know, I saw on the big screen a few years ago, and that's what turned me into a, a kaiju fan through and through, yeah. or a daikaiju fan through and through. I have yet to watch the Japanese version of it, even though a listener, and I don't know who it is, so if you're listening, a listener sent me a copy of the Japanese version. I've not watched it yet, so I apologize for that, but I've been sitting on it for a while. So whoever sent me that, thank you. I understand the Japanese version is a little bit more serious, less slapsticky, um, but still, Mothra versus Godzilla really seems to dial that back. Well, I mean, people are dying in this movie. Right. People are getting beat up and bloodied, and right. and not just the monsters. It's right. pretty intense in spots. There's some pretty serious human conflict in this film, and that's what I think marks the best of the Daikaiju movies is a combination of monster action and human drama. And the writer of these films with this film really seemed to figure it out. And his, his name is Shinichi Sekizawa. And forgive me if I haven't pronounced that correctly. Better than I would have. Suddenly (laughs) it's like it all clicked for him. And he was like, Oh, we could have this human drama going on. And then the monster drama going on in parallel and then at certain points they're going to overlap in one way or another and that's going to make this more interesting and we see that in what i consider the great trilogy of godzilla films are mothra versus godzilla ghidra the three-headed monster and invasion of the astro monster otherwise known as monster zero Mm -hmm. these are the wheelhouse of daikaiju they are the ones that from, I think, 1964 to 1966-ish, that really shaped what everyone thinks of as kind of the golden age of the Daikaiju movie. And the, the key is the interaction between the two. Later, we started, the, the monster stuff got goofier, the human stuff got a little more outrageous, and the balance didn't quite seem to work in a lot of the later films. I mean, Destroy All Monsters maybe aside. But in these three films, it really works well. And in a sense, even though there's there's kind of a plot shift in the human drama toward the end of Mothra versus Godzilla, which we may talk about, I don't think it ever really worked better than it does in Mothra versus Godzilla. And certainly this would be you know, and I'll shock you again. This would probably be in my top 10 films of all time. I just love wow. this film. This film, if it is on TV, I can have it on. I can have it on endlessly. I could put it on a loop and just play it probably for days on end without getting tired of it. And every time I would look up from whatever I would be doing, there would be something really cool going on on the screen that would make me smile and possibly make me laugh and definitely make me want to write and create art. And I think that's one of the tests I have for a really good film is at the end of watching the film, do I want to be a writer? Do I want to be a filmmaker? Do I want to be an artist? Do I want to then go out and carry forth? When I watch these films, do I want to start thinking about writing Daikaiju Attack 2? or Cushing Horrors, or whatever I happen to be working on. Does this inspire me? And this is one of those movies 
really inspires me. And yes, I can see that it's, is it a perfect movie in the way that Seventh Samurai or Citizen Kane or Casablanca are perfect movies or Metropolis? No, it's not a perfect movie in that sense, but it is an inspiring movie. And I think it's inspired generations of monster kids and monster creators in the same way that the classic Harryhausen films have and King Kong has and things like that. All right, so you heard it here first, folks. Steve says this is a better movie than Citizen Kane. Uh, it, no. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually, it's, I love Kane. Kane's a great film. I know, it's I know. certainly a, a movie that I can watch more times in repetition than I can Citizen Kane. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's certainly that level of, there's just some pure fun and joy in a lot of these movies. Right. I have yet to see, with the exception of the movie that shall but not be named, I have yet to see a Godzilla film that I did not find something in that I liked. Right. I mean, even some of the wonkier ones, even something like Son of Godzilla, there's still some things in there that yeah. I can latch on to and enjoy. And this yeah, one, absolutely. even though I'm not a big fan of something in this movie, I find a lot of fun and joy in this film. So what are you not – what is oh, the something? Boy. Might as well go there now since you brought it up. What is that? I'm curious. You know, Or, or do you want to no, save no, it no. for later? I'll, I'll say it now because <laughs> I want to give listeners a chance to turn off before they get to into the show. Uh, <laughs> I have never been a big fan of Mothra. Really? I've okay. just never been a big fan of that. I just – I love Godzilla. I love Rodan. Rodan's my favorite non-Godzilla. I mean I love Rodan. Ghidra's awesome. You know, I love them all, but I just never – latched on to Mothra. And I don't think Mothra's bad, per se. Maybe Mothra just doesn't speak to Maybe I didn't come to Mothra at the right time in my life. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it's probably more me than Mothra. I just, just something about Mothra I just can't latch on to. And I know Mothra's got a huge fan base. Uh, oh, Jeff yeah. over at the Kaiju cast loves Mothra. I have a hard time latching on to that thing. I don't know why. It took me a while to warm up to Mothra too, And part of the reason has to do Entirely with the American marketing of this film, especially. Okay. Because I love Mothra. Mothra is probably my third favorite kaiju, maybe my even my second. After oh, Godzilla. wow. Okay. But Godzilla, Mothra, Rodan, those are the, the big three. Ghidra's a bad guy, so he doesn't count. He doesn't get to be in my top list. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. So I love Mothra now, but... I, I was thinking about this as I was watching this film and making notes over the last couple of days. This is, I believe, if I can search way back into my brain, back into the late 1960s probably when I was very small, I think this was the first actual Godzilla movie that I ever saw as a kid. All right. The first one, which would have been on a an old black and white TV back when – TV Guide was a printed thing, and you had to search through it to find cool stuff to watch every week and mark it up the way I mark the Turner Classic Movie Guide now to, <laughs> to find the things that I want to make sure that I see or record or both. This was the first movie with Godzilla I'd seen. I actually had the Godzilla Aurora model kit from the time I was really small, but we didn't have streaming back then or the internet. Even revival houses didn't hit their heyday until the 70s, I don't think. But back then, they were few and far between on television. And so 
I sat down, I was remembering as I watched this, that I sat down never having seen Godzilla before, not even knowing how he would arrive in the picture when the giant egg shows up early in the picture. As a kid, I was like, is Godzilla in that egg? What's happening with that egg? Then Godzilla has a much cooler introduction in the film later. But as a kid, I didn't know any of that. And the thought, Godzilla versus the thing, the thing, what's that? That sounds just amazingly cool and and it clearly it's indescribable and even though i didn't have this word then the thing that's almost kind of a a lovecraftian word sure there's something oh, yeah. huge and mysterious and then when you discover that the thing is basically a giant moth oh <laughs> that's <laughs> the thing seriously the thing is a giant butterfly. I think Mothra has that idea to overcome right away. Also, in some sense, Mothra isn't as cool a visual because it's a bug. It's a huge bug, but it's not the coolest visual in the world, especially when you first see it. It's like Mothra's a bug. <laughs> the thing is a bug, and this is going to battle Godzilla? I think there is some lingering disappointment that Mothra is the kaiju that looks like an everyday object. Mothra is either a moth or Mothra is a caterpillar. And we see moths and caterpillars and butterflies constantly where we don't see giant flying reptiles or three-headed monsters or you know, Angirosauruses, or especially, you know, not 150 feet or 400 feet or however tall he is now, giant fire-breathing lizards. We just don't see that. It's much harder to make a moth a really cool monster. Here's the, the other place where the U.S. marketing of this film, I think, went astray. And it's given the sexism of the time, it's completely understandable. What a lot of us wouldn't have understood then is that Mothra and Godzilla are two essentially different mythologies that are coming here together in this film. The Mothra film, which I reviewed again last night just before I went to bed, is essentially, yes, it has a giant monster in it, but it's kind of a fantasy film. It has trappings of nuclear destruction and that all that kind of stuff, but it also has twin fairies. Even if you think they're atomic mutated tiny little girls, there's more of a fantasy element. So Mothra is kind of more of a, despite the destruction she causes in her film, she's more of a fantasy creature. And mashing that together against the kind of hard radiation Godzilla science fiction monster makes for a really good clash of those two worlds on a conceptual level. But in the U.S., people didn't see Mothra the same way they probably see Mothra in Japan. And when they brought Mothra to the U.S. and dubbed this film and Ghidra the Three-Headed Monster and probably some of the others that I haven't gone back and watched that have Mothra in them, they changed her sex. Suddenly, Mothra isn't the benevolent protector goddess spirit. She's just another guy monster, right? So when they talk about the thing... They're always using the male pronoun. And 
that actually takes away one of the things that makes Mothra unique. Mothra is the Wonder Woman of the Godzilla universe. It's Batman, <laughs> Superman, Green Lantern, The Flash, Wonder Woman. Mothra is that character in the Godzilla universe. The only other female kaiju that pop into my head right off the top of my head are there's the female Rodan, who is apparently killed forever and good in the end of the first Rodan film. And there's a female Gapa, which was not even a Toho picture. There may be others, but there are very few female giant monsters. And Mothra is one of them. And by taking that special element away in the U.S., they hurt Mothra's reputation and Mothra's appeal. In the same way, you would take away a lot of the appeal of Wonder Woman if you made her a guy. Okay, so she's sure. a guy like Superman with a golden lasso and a plane. It's just not as interesting. You take away that special factor, and then you have to judge Mothra on other criteria. And the other criteria of Mothra looks like a bug. Well, that's not really that special. Right. And worse, as a kid, Mothra kicks Godzilla's ass. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Not just in this film, <laughs> but Mothra kind of kicks Godzilla's ass repeatedly over the series when ass-kicking is necessary. And as a kid, you're like, oh, man, that bug just beat up Godzilla. I hate that thing. <laughs> <laughs> so I think all those were working against Mothra, and I think yeah. that's why um, Mothra... For people that do a lot of kaiju movies, you get to the point where, like, at least for me, where I've come to appreciate the kind of protector goddess Mothra in a way that as a kid I couldn't get down with the giant bug Mothra and the disappointment of, oh, it's a giant bug. On the other hand, hopefully, as you watch Mothra versus Godzilla, you get over that, oh, it's a giant bug. You get over that and get into the fact that this is the kaiju fighting in this and the kaiju action, no offense to Ghidra or the Monster Zero movie or any of the others that come, the Godzilla versus Mothra battle in this, I want to say it's probably the best kaiju fight of all time. Oh, it's impressive. Yeah. No, I am right there with you there. I, I agree with you. I was going to say that final confrontation, it's stellar. Right. And there are two. I mean, this is the wonderful part. It's almost like, you know, a wrestling revenge match. There's part one of the fight with Godzilla versus the moth form. And then there's parts two of the fight where Godzilla is versus the caterpillar forms of Mothra. Within the film, it becomes kind of a grudge match between these two great giant monsters. You don't have to wait for the sequel because... <laughs> Just wait a few minutes and we start over again. It's great. Didn't like the way the first one turns out. Let's see how the second one goes. <laughs> yeah. Now, Mothra was just in the one other film before this, right? And then Mothra joined the Kaiju-verse? Kaiju-verse? Do they call it that? The Toho-verse? <laughs> I don't think they had that word, but we can certainly <clears throat> Yeah, that's it. what we'll... Yeah, okay. <laughs> so, yeah, Mothra join, It becomes part of the Godzilla continuity. With this film, and then, of course, Mothra had been tied to Godzilla ever since. There'd be some other standalone Mothra films. The ones that they made um, in the 90s, I believe, mm -hmm. they're kids' films. But there's some cool stuff in them, so very cool stuff. And Godzilla, Mothra, King Ghidra, Giant Monsters All Out Attack from 2001, I'm a big fan of. If there is a rival for my favorite kaiju film, 
versus this film, that one is it. Oh, that really? One. I love that film. Well, that's one of the reasons why I like to have people, just a wide variety of people on the show, because they have their favorite movies and they bring it to the table. And I'm really glad you brought this one to the Monster Kid Radio Clubhouse or Wheelhouse or Headquarters. <laughs> I don't know. The the MK Arniverse. I don't know. Something. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because even though I'm not a big fan of Mothra, and I think for me, my issue with Mothra comes from when I was a kid, when I first started discovering what these movies were without actually having seen them, you know, looking at them in books and things like that. Mm-hmm. And you see Godzilla, giant reptilian monster. You see Ghidra. Oh, he's scaly. He's a reptile. He's a giant monster. Mothra is a giant insect. It just didn't see, you know, they just didn't seem like they fit in the same world to me as a kid. <laughs> and I still have that that everything else is a giant reptile. Why is Mothra not a reptile? You know? Right. <laughs> or the other way around, you know? And, right. Well, and in, I still in the like same the movies, way that, but... that Spiga and, and Gymantis or whatever they're, they're calling those two characters now, the, the other giant insect creatures in the Godzilla-verse, I always felt just a little bit cheated. Yeah. <laughs> so what, you guys got up this morning, you couldn't think of anything new? You could, don't have any more monsters with claws and buzz saws on their chests. You don't have any more three-headed <laughs> dragons. You don't have any more, you know, spiny ankylosaurs. What, what, what's going on here? See, I told you, part of it is the bug thing. Mm-hmm. It really is. It's hard now, I feel like, for people to watch these older movies, especially if they've never seen them, to have these expectations of what a giant monster movie is. But if you can check all those... Mothra versus Godzilla, it's a great film. I mean, I really enjoyed it. It's not one of my like top five. I'd say maybe top ten. I'll put it in my top ten. Okay. I did enjoy it quite a bit. When you first saw it, you said you saw it on TV. So it was the Godzilla versus the Thing yep. version, which is kind of what we're focusing on here. Right. This was released by – was it American International that put it out over here? I think so. Yeah. So they picked up the Godzilla – Versus the thing film, well, Mothra versus Godzilla, redubbed it, recut it just a little bit. A little bit. Now, not as much as some others, which we'll talk about in the future. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe next show you and I yeah, do yeah, we'll maybe. talk about another one. <laughs> but if I'm reading this right, there's only really a difference of about 30 seconds in runtime between the two versions. Right. The voices, Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes they don't really match as well as they could. You know, since you brought it up, I do want to talk about the the dubbing here. Okay. I think dubbing of giant monster movies gets a bad rap a lot of times. Even if you think these voices are a little silly, I actually think this is really good American dubbing of Japanese monster movies. This film in particular was dubbed by Titra, which sometimes was apparently later known as Titan. But what people in the U.S. will maybe know these people from was that this was Peter Fernandez and Jack Grimes and all those guys who dubbed Speed Racer and a lot of the classic original anime shows, even before there was the word anime. The people working on this in the U.S. were really serious. Now, around this time also... Toho realized there was an English market for these, and they started doing what they call now the international dub of a lot of these films. And I'm not sure if this one has an international dub or not. This is one of those films, sadly, that has not been released in high-definition Blu-ray. 
like uh, Ghidra and uh, Monster Zero as well. They haven't actually re-released those. And my fear is when they do release them, if they release them with a dub, that they'll release them with the international dub, which, as I understand it, was done by Hong Kong English translation production houses. They just don't work really as well. The, The attention to detail doesn't seem to be there, and the translations may be a little too literal. The mouth match doesn't work as well. The mouth matches are nearly impossible. It's an extra burden for people to really kind of do a good job with it. That being said, I love the dubbing in this film. This is one of, in terms of dubbing, this is one of my favorite dubbed giant monster films. Okay. What you may lose in the in the lip movements, I think you make up for in the character of the people on screen. And some people have been annoyed by the fact that they all have just a little bit of a, a Far Eastern Japanese accent. I actually think that was kind of a, a good choice on their part because it seems more natural to hear people from Japan speaking English with a slight accent than it does in, say, the more modern dubs of the Godzilla movies, where all of the characters speak perfect English. And, you know, maybe that's my, you know, 56-year-old eyes, but it just doesn't track as well for me as this film does. And the other thing, if you watch the original language version and you watch the dub version of this one in particular, you start to see that the people doing the dubbing they were serious about this. They were really kind of trying to put emotion and content into their characters and trying to give the characters a lot of the feel, even if they don't have the exact same timbre of voice. But the characters, the voices feel the same in this dub version as they do in the original Japanese language version. One of the tests would be, if you look away from the screen and you hear the actors talking, do you still get the emotional content of what's going on in the scene? And I think with this movie in particular, that you really do. And I didn't have a problem with the accents either. In fact, I felt like it made the most sense as well for the same reason. I mean, right, yeah, we're, we're a couple of white guys. So yes. <laughs> you know, we, we have a different perspective here, I'm sure. A couple of middle-aged white guys. And, and maybe there are some people out there that are insulted by the fact that these guys seem to have a little bit of a, a slight Japanese a- accent, not... Not a heavy parody accent. Yeah, I don't think it was done to parody. When you are dubbing, you do end up with some strange things sometimes where something that would be a long sentence in our language is a short sentence in Japanese or the other way around. And there is a point in the dubbing where there – we haven't talked about the plot really, but there's a point where the scientist is examining – the giant egg that is washed up on the beach and the reporter comes to him and, and the scientist doesn't want to talk to the reporter and the female character manages to convince the scientist to answer just what question. Yeah. And, <laughs> and in the English version of the dub, the reporter then asks, if Jiro says, this giant egg, do you think it's going to explode? <laughs> where did that come from? Yeah. <laughs> But if you watch the Japanese version, you see that there has been discussion leading up to that where, is this a man-made object? We don't know. We're not certain what it is. And the actual question he asks is, do you think there's a threat to this giant egg? Could there be poison gas inside it or could there be explosives? 
right? That's all in the Japanese. <laughs> Somehow they managed to get that all into that same kind of time frame. And in the American version, the U.S. version, all it is is, this giant egg, is it going to explode? Essentially, that's the question. But they shortened it. They had to shorten it in such a way that it seems to completely come out of left field. You know, it's like, there's a giant egg in your yard. Wow, that's amazing. Do you think it's going to explode? You think it'll blow up? Right. No, I think it's much more likely going to hatch, right? There are still, occasionally you run into something like that. I think that's the one that every time I see this film that I'm going, why did he just do that? And until I watched the Japanese thing, it didn't make any sense to me at all. Well, you don't get to be a reporter in Japan without asking those hard-hitting questions, Steve. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Well, you mentioned the plot. You've prepared kind of a story breakdown, haven't you? So the movie starts with a huge typhoon that floods the shoreline of Japan and basically makes a wreck all along the coastline and has to be pumped out and the land has to be reclaimed and the debris cleared from the sea. Our heroes, Ichiro Sakai, who's played by Akira Takarada, is a reporter and he's got with him the cub photographer Junko Nakanishi, who is played by Yuriko Hoshi, and they come to the flooding area to document the disaster. And she's fiddling around, having trouble setting up her camera because she's looking for the perfect shot. And he's like, just take the pictures and we'll move on. And she's discovered a strange, mysterious object. It's kind of a glistening mother of pearl, greenish blue, weird object floating amid the wreckage which in my little note here, I says it looks like a, a trash can lid with warts on it. And what this is, they're not <laughs> sure, but they pick it up and take it away with them. Meanwhile, back at the newspaper, their editor sends the comic relief reporter, his name is uh, Jiro Nakamura, played by Yu Fujiki. His shtick is that through this entire film with the giant egg, this guy is always eating eggs. That's his thing. He loves hard-boiled eggs, so he's always taking out an egg and starting to eat it. Anyway, his, his editor sends him to cover reports of a giant egg that has washed up on the beach near a small village. So while that's going on, the other two, Ichiro and Junko, meet up with the Professor Ura. Yeah, I'm sorry, I'm going to screw up his name. It's Miura, which is Hiroshi Koizumi. They've come to investigate this egg as well. So we've got a bunch of characters now converging on the egg after the storm. That's the point at which we get the scene, is it poison? Will it blow up? <laughs> so <laughs> as they're discussing that, the scientist is like scraping little bits off the side of the egg. In comes... Shady businessman Kuriyama, who's played by Yoshifumi Tajima. I think I'm getting these right. I didn't spend any time in Japan, so I don't have uh, any kind of native pronunciation of, of these names. You're but, doing a much better job than I would have. That's why I wanted to. <laughs> so take it away, brother. Kumiyama has come to the village, and he has bought this egg. And this egg is monstrous. When we talk about a big egg, we are not talking about an egg the size of your car. We are talking about an egg the size of your house. Well, actually, the egg the size of Donald Trump's house. It is monstrous. It is just this huge, amazing-sized egg. And it's sitting on the beach, and the businessman has bought it 
from the farmers for the equivalent. He's figured out the wholesale price of eggs and then done a calculation of how big this egg is and has bought the egg from the villagers with promises of paying them later for a good chunk of money. But he figures he is going to completely rake in the dough later. After he's shooed away the scientists and the reporters from his egg, he goes back to a hotel where I'm guessing this hotel must be right near where the egg is at because the reporters and the scientists who had been kind of little adversaries for their scene, they've now kind of teamed up together against this businessman and all of them have gone back to this hotel that's near the beach. And when he's there, Kumayama is meeting with his even shadier business partner, which is Torahata, which is played by Kenji Sahara. And their plan is to build a huge incubator around this egg and then basically (laughs) set up Disneyland (laughs) around it and just get the the money coming in from all sides. That's the plan. Seems like a good plan. And clearly they have the infrastructure to do it because in the matter of one jump cut, they've gone from the egg sitting on a beach to the egg almost being completely surrounded by this incubator device that they're planning to have as the center of their money-making attraction. Even though Torahata already has literally in his room at this hotel, which I guess he must own this suite or something, he has literally a closet full of money. <laughs> Maybe you I guess you could say it was just a cabinet, but he has a, a case that is stacked with bills in in thick wads on shelves. It's just like for I don't even remember why. It's like maybe uh uh, Kumiyama needs some some money or something like that, but he, he opens this up and Kumiyama goes eyes go really wide. Yes, yeah, <laughs> it's like oh my god, this guy has money. And at that point, he's thinking clearly, I'm going to make a bundle with this mm-hmm. guy. Tarahata tells him not to worry about that. Well, then why'd you open up the case to show off your money? <laughs> right? Yeah, uh, yeah. 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 It's like oh. you're not gloating about the fact that you've got a closet full of money, are you? <laughs> At this point, the Shobijin, which are the twin fairies from Mothra Island, show up. And they're played by Emi and Yumi Ito, who were a popular singing duo in Japan. They're twin sisters. And I recently discovered that one of the twins didn't have a mole near one of her eyes. So the other one actually always painted that on when they appeared together. So they would appear absolutely identical. Anyway, they're (laughs) twins. In the film, they are twin fairies from Mothra Island, which are known as the Shobijin, which I think translates as something like little pretty ones or something like that. Okay. Anyway, they're, they're tiny little women who are somewhere between 10 and 12 inches high, maybe. They're very small, small enough to hide behind a dinner plate in any case. Sure. So they show up, and they are, if you've seen the previous Mothra film, they are psychically connected with Mothra. They are like Mothra's priestesses, almost. And their history is that in the first film, they were discovered on Mothra's island, and uh, guys from Japan kidnapped them and forced them to become singers in, in Japan, which is just a little weird slavery thing going on there. Anyway, so they show up, and they're like, you must return the egg. It's Moth- I don't remember if they say Mothra's egg, but Naturally, the two greedy guys immediately like, oh, my God, now we've got tiny little women that we can put in our attraction. 
So they immediately try to, rather than talking with the twin fairies, who almost always say the same thing at the same time together, and it's a really cool effect, both in the Japanese and in the American versions, this kind of stereo of these two tiny women. So rather than deciding that they should talk to them, the businessmen instead try to catch the fairies, but they are fairies, so they they don't seem to quite obey the physical laws. It's like sometimes you seem to be able to put them in a cage, and other times they hide behind a plate and you try to... You throw something over the plate and you think you've got them and somehow they're gone. They escape and end up finding the reporters and the scientists who take the, we should return Mothra's egg idea. Now, you have to assume, because the fairies are here and Mothra is here, that the history of Mothra, at least to some extent, exists in this world. You'd think so. You'd think that people would say, oh my God, that's Mothra's egg? We should give that back right away because last time Mothra knocked down a whole bunch of buildings and was going to destroy the world, except we gave her back the fairies and then she went away, right? But of course, the the movie would be very short if that happens. Naturally, the scientists and the reporters, they agree they're going to help the fairies, but uh, it's not going to work out. The scientists put the fairies in like their little traveling case, like they were little cats or something, and they take them to the... <laughs> The incubator building, which, as I said, has sprung up seemingly almost overnight for the company, which is known as Happy Enterprises, which I I love that name. Happy Enterprises. Don't pay attention to the fact that we're kind of white slavers and we're we're really shady businessmen. We are Happy Enterprises. So they take the show machine and go and try to talk to the guys about giving the egg back to Mothra. Naturally, the greedy businessmen don't fall for that. In fact... They have a counter offer for you. They will happily buy those twin fairies from you. <laughs> Fortunately, the reporters and the scientists have more morals than these guys, so they turn that offer down. So Mothra's kind of been hanging around in the area, not destroying anything, being really quiet and subtle, just hanging out where no one can see a moth that's basically the size of a football stadium. How that works, I'm not sure, but just go with it. It's a really cool movie. So they leave. Then the reporters end up finding out from the scientists that that trash can lid they had picked up is radioactive. Fortunately, Japan has a lot of uh, experience with such things, so they take the reporters in and decontaminate them, and their hair doesn't fall out. None of the really bad radiation things happen to them. Phew! We just barely avoided that. But, you know, we might want to go see why this strange scaly thing we picked up is radioactive so they go back to the the place where they found it which is now all dry they've managed to drain all the water from the flooding away from it but there's something weird going on there the land is moving says the cub photographer who's been having trouble taking pictures but now she's a real excuse because she's trying to focus on this vista and the vista keeps moving and as you look out you see the earth shifting in the background and everyone stops and looks. And at that point, this huge tendril bursts up from under the earth. And as a kid, I'm like, Oh my God, what is that? That's amazing. And it turns out that it's the tale of Godzilla. And here he is in what is probably, in my opinion, his best opening appearance in any movie. Godzilla rises up, out of the earth, shaking the dirt from his enormous scaly body. 
And at this point, I probably should mention that if you don't know, there are a number of different Godzilla suits. In fact, they almost had to remake him every movie or every couple <laughs> of movies. They, they put right? him through the ringer, yeah. That, well, you know, they were making him out of foam rubber, and they'd right. get in the water, and then the, the suit would get weighed down, and it would sag, and it would start to deteriorate. This film, they made an entirely new Godzilla suit for, having just, you know, kind of wrecked the other one with King Kong versus Godzilla. And because Godzilla is huge cult worldwide, there are actual nicknames for the individual Godzilla suits that were used in these movies. And people that are in, into Godzilla even deeper than I am, like like Kyle at the Kaiju cast probably, and other people that are way into Godzilla, know what each of these Godzilla suits is named. This one happens to be known as Mosugoji, which is... You know, even with my not very much knowledge of Japanese, I can parse that apart into Mosura and Gojira. So it's Mosu Goji, Mothra and Godzilla, the Mothra Godzilla suit mashed together. And I have to say, and in the opinion of at least some of the people doing the commentaries and other people I know, this is the best Godzilla suit ever. This Godzilla suit is just wicked looking. He's got kind of these, I don't want to call them heavy brows, but he's got kind of these slanted brows over his eyes that make him just look badass. Totally badass. I don't know what you feel about that, Derek, but I, no, I like this. I like the suit quite a bit. I really do. I mean, I love the original Godzilla. Don't get me wrong. And mm-hmm. I really like Godzilla versus King Kong, but I agree with everything that you're saying here, going back to the way he emerges from the earth, his presentation, the way he moves, the way he sounds, the suit design is great. The suit acting is phenomenal. Yeah, yeah. And we should we should mention probably at this point, I should have mentioned earlier, that the the suit actor for all of these classic Godzilla films is Haruo Nakajima. And last mm-hmm. I knew, he was still alive, so maybe I still have a chance to get that guy's autograph. And he played Godzilla in the original, and he played Godzilla up until the end of the 70s, pretty much. So he's in the suit, and at this point, this is, the, I think uh, we calculated the fourth film in this series. He'd done other suit acting in other series. He was in one of the Rodan suits, I'm pretty sure. He even did some Ultraman. I mean, he, he did a lot, and... I mean, if, if you're a monster kid and you don't know this guy's name, you've at least seen his work because he's done oh, so yeah. much. And yeah, he's, it, he's fantastic. Much, at this point, clearly, he really was at the top of his game. Yep. So not only does this suit look, this Mosugoji suit look great, but it moves really well. The people moving the tail around are really at the top of their game too because the tail was of course you know this pre-cgi pre a lot of mechanical things we might do nowadays they're moving that sucker around with wires and as a kid not knowing anything about godzilla really aside from the aurora model and and getting this far into the film and then seeing godzilla rise from the earth boy as a as a kid it was impressive and when i watched it two days ago and even yesterday it was still impressive. It looks great. And I can't help but wonder, too, because some of the original American promotional material, calling it Godzilla versus The Thing, there'd be this 
placard, this block covering whatever the thing is because we're going to hide it from you. It's just too terrifying to see. And in some of these ads, you'd see these tentacles kind of wrapping around it. Mm-hmm. So then you see the tail start to come up in the film, and you're like, "Ah, oh, is that is that the thing? Oh, wait, it's Godzilla. It's even better, you know." <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I was expecting the egg to open when I was a kid. Egg to open, and Godzilla would be inside, and that yeah. would be cool. But now I've discovered that it's Godzilla rising up from the earth. So good, and and it's just it's a great scene, and the the actors that are obviously in a completely different area actually being out in the countryside versus on the the uh, sound stage or the water stage where they shot the Godzilla stuff completely sell the reaction to Godzilla showing up and there's even fleeing villagers that they've uh, rotoscoped in at the, at the bottom of the the frame there this it's a great scene and this is a great Godzilla costume and at this point if you didn't know already and this is about half an hour into the film this movie is just going to kick. You know it because this Godzilla, he is a mean motor scooter. He looks like he is ready <laughs> to tear up the world. He looks angry. Yeah, this this is pre-Protector of the Earth Godzilla. This is still the angry God, which I personally like Godzilla as the bad guy. Just I do too. Yeah, that's what I like. I do too. And this is the last film for a long time mm-hmm. where he gets to just be the bad guy. So Godzilla rises, he stomps around, he boils down an oil plant, he knocks down a tower by getting his tail caught in the in the rigging. There's it seems like in every Godzilla film there has to be something that looks vaguely like the Eiffel Tower knocked down. Now <laughs> in this case there is actually Tokyo Tower, which is an exact replica of the Eiffel Tower, but Tokyo Tower is actually a replica of this is not that, but it's another similar-looking tower. I don't know how many they have in Japan. Anyway, he knocks down that. He burns this oil plant up with his atomic breath, which is really cool. And then he kind of all accidentally, on purpose, destroys the Japanese Nagoya Castle, which is a very famous Japanese castle. And if my research is right, one of the only castles that was completely spared in World War Two, so you know now. Fifteen years later, here Godzilla is knocking it down. Oh no! So Godzilla's on the the loose, and Jiro, the egg eater character, they're all trying to figure out how are we going to stop Godzilla. The military's trying to figure it out. The reporters are trying to figure out. Jiro is the egg eating reporter. As he eats one of his afternoon lunch eggs, suggests, "Oh uh, yeah, maybe we should get Mothra to help." And everyone's like, oh, that's a stupid idea. And then they're like, wait a minute, maybe it's not a stupid idea. So at that point, Ichiro, Junko, and uh, Miura, the scientist, all pack up and they truck off to Infant Island to plead their case. Because if you remember, the fairies and Mothra have left. Now, Infant Island in this film, it's the way I always think of Infant Island. But in the first film, it was kind of a lush jungle place. In this one, Infant Island is totally bombed out. It is a deserted nuclear wasteland because that's the backstory of the island. Even in the first film, it had some atomic issues, as we might say. So they go to this island. It's all bombed out except for one little green place with the twin fairies hang out. And they're like, hey, help us fight Godzilla. And the islanders are like, screw you. You've still got our egg. There's just no way we're going to have any part of you crazy people from the mainland. At that point, uh, Junko 
the uh, cub reporter makes a, a very impassioned, we are all one humanity kind of speech and breaks down in tears. And then Ichiro, her friend for the reporter, adds on to the end of her speech is like, yeah, don't you realize we're all in this together? And eventually that actually persuades the Islanders don't seem convinced. But the fairies and Mothra are convinced that, yeah, okay, maybe this is the only way to get our egg back, maybe, and really we should do this for the good of all mankind. At this point, they've told us in the film, Mothra is kind of at the end of her life cycle. Now, in the the English dub, of course, it's the end of his life cycle. Anyway, she's at the end of her life cycle, but she's willing to, to go and give it a shot to destroy Godzilla, even though if she does that, she's not going to be able to get back home before she dies which is really kind of touching and, and wonderful. Godzilla's still tearing up the countryside. Now he's heading for where they've got the incubator and the egg. At this point, Kumiyama and Torahata, the businessman, have realized Godzilla coming and wrecking their amusement park is going to be really bad for business. <laughs> you think? Yeah, and uh, Kumiyama has decided that Maybe Torahata, who doesn't seem too concerned about this, was not the best guy to have gone into business with in the first place. Because it's clear, you know, especially to grown-up Steve, that Torahata is one of these guys, sets up business deals, has other people use their own money, and then he takes a rake off, and that's where he gets his profit. So if the business succeeds or fails, he always makes money. If it fails, he makes money. If it succeeds, he makes more money. But if it fails, well, who cares? <laughs> it's not his money. The two businessmen, they have a what I one would call a pretty serious falling out about this. <laughs> yeah? <laughs> Kumayama beats Kurahata bloody, beats him until he is bleeding from the face and the nose and leaves him lying on the floor. Then what does he do? Well, what would you and I would do? We'd go for the closet full of money. <laughs> Sure. Yeah, it's right there. It's a closet full of money. <laughs> so he's going to recoup his losses by taking the closet full of money. Well, unfortunately for him, at this point, Torahata wakes up, fishes a gun out of a place where he's got hidden in the desk nearby, and shoots poor Koriyama in the head. Now, in the U.S. version, they kind of cut out the shot where you see him bleeding from the head. You see him shot, he falls over, you don't see him bleeding. But in the Japanese shot, this is one of, how much did you say they cut out of this? Like a minute? <laughs> this yeah, is yeah, one of not those, very much. So. This is one of those moments that they kind of said, oh, we don't want kids seeing bleeding from the head in this film. Poor old uh, Kumiyama, he falls over. He's he's uh, dead or gravely injured. While Torhada was bleeding on the floor, this is one of my favorite shots in the film. He wakes up, his vision clears, and he's got a clear view out the window of this hotel where he's been living. And out the window, coming over the hill, who is it, Derek? It's, <laughs> it's not Avon calling. It's it is not Avon calling. <laughs> it's Mosugoji. It's Godzilla coming over the hill as the two businessmen are fighting. So he shoots his former partner. And then, because there's all this money in this building and Godzilla is coming, uh, Torahata thinks, I better save the money and get out of here. Well, eh, wrong. 
bad mistake, Torahada. Naturally, Godzilla does not care that there are people inside this building trying to rescue their money. So he stomps through the building, and that is the end of the, the major bad guy arc in this story. Godzilla, then having waded through the nearby hotel, actually arrives at the incubator and starts just destroying it. And things look pretty dire for Mothra and her egg at this point. But just in time, Mothra comes flying over the hills and... Holy cow, there is an amazing kaiju battle. This may be the best giant monster battle ever put on film. It's just amazing. Even though I'm still a little lukewarm on Mothra, I still think this is one of the best battle sequences, and it's a big chunk of movie. I mean, it goes on for a while. You get a lot of bang for your buck here. Yeah, it seems, you know, I didn't time it, but it seems like it must be at least five minutes or more of just the two monsters beating the hell out of each other. And we didn't talk about any of the technical people in this film before at this point, aside from the dubbing folks. This film is directed by Ishiro Honda, who is the original Godzilla director and helmed the franchise for many years. And the score is by the amazing Ikira Ifukube, mm-hmm. who's, who did basically all of the great Godzilla music. There's only one other more recent composer that I think has done anything that's even in the same realm. If there is not Akira Fukube or Ifukube, however you pronounce it, if he's not doing the score, it doesn't really even almost seem like a Godzilla film. This is, uh, again, one of his great scores. And the, the reason I'm going for these technical guys right now is because at this point, you can't go further without talking about Eiji Tsuburaya who was the director of special effects photography and the genius behind a lot of the original Godzilla films in terms of special effects. He and his crew. Sure. There was a concerted effort to make these things look like real Japanese buildings and landmarks, and you know, they wouldn't look nearly as good if it wasn't for Tsuburaya being involved with Toho. Yeah, and he later went on to, to create Ultraman. Mm-hmm. And his uh, his uh, special effects studio still exists today. Sure. Tsuburaya and his crew, I think they use literally every trick that they know in special effects to make this battle come alive. You've got the Godzilla suit actor against the full-size Mothra puppet, which is done like a monstrous marionette. It's at least 15 feet wide across the wings and flying in this set with the Godzilla actor and attacking him and it's got legs that are animated by mechanics and stuff. They've got puppets of various scales that they are using in this. There's one scene that I'm not entirely sure they did with stop motion, but looks like it might be stop motion. These two Creatures are just going at it, hammer and tongs. The wind from Mothra's wings is so powerful that it's knocking Godzilla over. She grabs him by the tail and drags him across the landscape at one point. It's just amazing. And even though Mothra is at the end of her life cycle, boy, does she have a bag of tricks, which includes mm-hmm. some kind of a, a poisonous dust at one point she sprays Godzilla with. And, you know, as a kid, this was tough to watch because 
Mothra is kicking Godzilla's ass right. for a lot of this battle. And he is thrashing around, flailing on his back, looking kind of like a turtle out of water in some scenes. And the fact that she's just keeping him off balance and really wrecking him. And the, the special effects in this whole sequence are just, most of them are just astonishingly good. This one battle, and there's another battle to come, this one battle is worth the whole movie. I agree. And I almost kind of want to stop at this point because I want listeners to, if they haven't seen this film, I don't want to ruin who wins the fight here. I mean, it's a versus movie. You know they're going to fight. Right. But I, but I don't want to give away the, I thought the ending was pretty unique, the way it all wraps up. Yeah, you know, I mean, we could stop the summary at this point just to say that this battle ends but there is still another battle to come. Like I said earlier, you don't have to wait for the sequel. It's like that week on wrestling where uh, suddenly Hulk Hogan is defeated by Randy Macho Man Savage. And it's like they're rematching next week. And oh, my God, what's going to happen between these two classic wrestlers? You don't have to wait that week. All nope. you got to do is wait while the movie continues on and the characters, uh, the human characters find something more to do. And you get the climactic battle of this film and it's as a kid and even as an adult the the ending is it's kind of surprising but it's really cool and the special effects in the next battle they're also very very cool agreed agreed this film it's readily available uh yep. you know as of right now as of this recording it's like five bucks on amazon it is super cheap. If you don't have the classic media edition, which is what I have, and I believe that's what you watched as well, yeah, right? That's what I have. At five bucks, it's it's a steal. I paid happily paid three or four times that when it first came out. I believe, if I don't already have it set up, there is an Amazon Marketplace shop set up for Monster Kid Radio, and I believe I've got a kaiju section. If this isn't on there by the time well, if this isn't on there now, it will be by the time this episode goes out. So it'll be on there so people can get it real cheap, real easy. But cool. you're going to watch over and over and over again, I think. Absolutely. Absolutely. I watched it three times in the last two days, and I'm still not tired of it. Not even close. Of course, you can follow the link in the show notes over at monsterkidradio.net or just go straight to sdsullivan.com. That's going to take you to his website, and you're going to be able to find out about all the different book projects that he's got coming up. He started dancing around another project he might be involved with that he really couldn't talk too much about. But as soon as that news is ready to go out, sdsullivan.com, you're going to be able to find it there. And, of course, we'll probably talk about it here on Monster Kid Radio as well. Steve, thank you for taking the time to chat with us about Godzilla vs. The Thing, one of your favorite movies. I did not know that. Very interesting choice. And listeners, it turns out that he really likes the movie Ghidra, the Three-Headed Monster, which was the next movie in the Godzilla saga. And we're going to talk about that next week with Steve for part two of our Stephen D. Sullivan Ghost Kaiju event. Is it really an event? He's just going to be back for episode 246, so come back for that. I say there are things better left unsolved. Who knows what waits for us in nature's no man's land? Impossible, unbelievable, fantastic. But I tell you, it could happen. It could happen. It could happen. It could happen. Yes, it could happen. For various authorities believe that buried somewhere under the polar ice cap, 
in a state of suspended animation, are the awesome creatures, the leviathans that roamed the earth at the dawn of time. And under certain conditions, a nuclear explosion could free one from his icy tomb. Then, guided by instinct, the beast would come back, back to the caverns of the deepest Atlantic where it was spawned. An armored giant wreaking his prehistoric fury on modern man and his puny machines. Cities would be terrorized by the cruel intruder from the past. Populations crazed and panicked with fear by its destructive force. Granite and steel would crumble. Soldiers and their weapons would be powerless before the onslaught of the beast. The beast. The beast. The beast from 20,000 fathoms. Herald Square, 34th Street. Broadway, every section of the city is guarded. No one knows where the monster will strike next. Another one, Colonel? No. You know what the radioactive isotope is? No, but if it can be loaded, I can fire it. I'll load it. Just remember one thing. This is the only isotope of its kind this side of Oak Ridge, so you can't miss. Film productions began in 1934, and after producing almost 200 films and television programs, the studio is still releasing and re-releasing new and classic film titles. 1951 Downplace is the podcast that brings you the story of the great Hammer films, one movie at a time. Here are your hosts describing what Hammer means to them. First is Casey. Hammer means the beautiful and glamorous women of Hammer horror, the engaging storytelling and amazing period films. Joining him is Derek. Hammer means the incredible work of actors like Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee, and even Michael Ripper. The gothic storytelling, the incredible music, and the set pieces. And finally, here's Scott. Hammer, that 1972 blaxploitation film starring Fred Williams, love that movie. Hammer! This boy has a lot to learn. Join our hosts as they make their journey through the Hammer Films catalogue and discuss each film with critical opinion, historical facts, production notes and other information about these classic films. 1951 Downplace can be found in iTunes or their website www.1951downplace.com Better not be the 2003 flick starring Adam Goldberg, you know, the Hebrew Hammer. 1951 Downplace, the home of Hammer Films discussion. But the room was quiet. Had it been a nightmare? What woke him? Was the candle in the antique mirror moving? Was there something standing by the curtains? Was he mad? The Crimson Cult. So terrifying they won't let us tell you about it here. She'd wandered alone. The passageway between the walls was damp and musty. She dropped her candle. And then I heard it. Now she has no head. It happened in Horror House. I was there. A nightmare combination of shock and terror, and you're invited behind forbidden doors. 
Horror House stars Frankie Avalon and Jill Hayworth. The Crimson Cult features Boris Karloff and Christopher Lee. See them together for the first time, but don't see them alone. Rated GP. I want to thank everybody for listening to Monster Kid Radio this week. I really appreciate you taking the time to check us out and join us while we talk about these classic monster movies, the stuff that we love. I hope you love it as much as Steve and I did this week. If you want to know anything about Monster Kid Radio, head over to monsterkidradio.net. This is where you're going to get everything you need to know about Monster Kid Radio between episodes. There are links to our Facebook group here. You can also find our contact information where you can call and leave us a voicemail at 503-479-5657. That's 503-4795-MKR. Or you can shoot me an email like listener Diana in New Jersey did. I'm not going to read Diana's email on the show. It was kind of a personal thing. But, Diana, thank you for sharing pictures of your cats with us. Man, that's I'm a cat person. What what can I say? So thank you for reaching out to me. By the time this episode goes out, I'll have emailed you directly as well. So thank you for that. If anybody else wants to write in or call in about anything that we've talked about on this episode of the show or the previous 244, I'd love to hear from you. Also on our website, you're going to find links to every piece of music that's appeared here on the show. Every band has given us the okay to play their music here. So if you like what you hear, go check them out and let them know that Monster Kid Radio sent you. There's a link to our Amazon store where you can pick up a couple of things to our Amazon link. Help support the show that way. And you can also support us through Patreon, where you can become a patron of Monster Kid Radio and help support the show that way. Like I've already said, next week, Steve will be back to talk about... Ghidra, the three-headed monster. Nothing the screen has ever shown before can surpass the thrills of Ghidra, the three-headed monster. Atomic fireball hurled from outer space. Hydra, the three-headed monster, threatens man's very existence on Earth. I'll go ahead and I'll say it right now. Gidra, the three-headed monster, I actually prefer to Godzilla versus the Thing. Not that I thought Godzilla vs. The Thing was a bad movie. I just like Ghidra a little bit more. And I think it's because it's got my boy Rodan in it. So come back here in about seven days to hear me talk a little bit about Rodan, King Ghidra, Mothra. Godzilla, you know, it's just going to be fun. So I hope you come back for that. Between now and then, remember that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Flight of Garuda. That belongs to the band Daikaiju. It's from their album Phase 2. You can find them at daikaiju.org or daikaiju.bandcamp.com or follow the link in the show notes at monsterkidradio.net. However you get there, pick up the album. It's a good one. Talk to everybody here in seven days. (laughs) 